Welcome back, folks, to Woody Allen Adjacent. This is a podcast series that is part of the Woody Allen retrospective where we're going to be talking about films that have inspired us to bring them up because maybe we see a bit of Woody in them. Maybe they feel relative to Woody in some way. There's a reason why we feel it's relevant to this discussion. Or you could just say we're having an excuse to talk about films that we really like. James Walsh is my co-host on this venture. And I appreciate you, James. How have you been? I've been good. Good, good. Why don't you remind the people of the last discussion we had based on Woody Allen and Jason, which was a movie you recommended. What what was that movie? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> was it they came to, it was they came together, wasn't it? It was they came together, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was I was thinking back to the last one that wasn't about that uh, a movie, but uh yeah, yeah, it was they came together. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna avoid the drama this time. Let's just let's just stick to the movies this time. <laughs> so yeah, they came together the comedy drama or where oh no the comedy drama the rom-com that we just went we just kind of went a little bit off topic talking about our thoughts on the the, the romantic comedy drama genre in general and that was a great discussion if you're watching this on youtube i'll put a link to the discussion in the top right corner of the youtube card we've got our own playlist of great movies we had discussions on i love you daddy and uh marriage story and um what was the one we did with Ben Stiller and Edward Norton? Keeping the Faith. Keeping the Faith. That was another great one. You guys don't want to miss out on those great discussions, but today we are going to be talking about a series, a movie series, a much-beloved series, and it's a three-part movie series, but today we're only going to be talking about the first two parts, and we'll get into why a bit later. But James, if you don't mind, would you mind introducing this movie series to the listeners? Today we are going to be talking about the first two parts of the Before Trilogy by Richard Linkletter. Uh, The first movie, Before Sunrise, came out in 1995, and the second, Before Sunset, came out in 2004. Both movies star Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpley uh, as an American and a a French girl who meet on a train and decide to uh, see where things go and wander around Vienna falling in love. And then in the second movie, reconnecting nine years later to uh, to find out where their lives had gone. Yeah. I know I always say this with most of our movie discussions, but I feel more than ever, listeners, I, I really would appreciate it if you watched the movies before listening to this conversation, because I don't want to take away from the magic of experiencing these movies for the first time. Because to me... It's a magical experience that might be sounding a little bit overboard, but first time watching the kind of conversation we're going to have, taking apart all the things we love and the things we've noticed. And I don't really, I don't really want you, to, I want you to experience that, guys. So if you haven't watched these movies, please check them out. If you, you know, most people, some people might not care and just want to listen to us talk about it. That's fine. But more than ever, I don't know if you agree, James. I want people to experience this series for the first time without hearing us talk about it. What, what do you think? Am I going too far? No, uh, I think that, especially since it is a series, uh, it, it would be better for them to experience it uh, without any spoilers. But since you're deciding to stick around, let's continue the conversation. So one of the things the director, Richard Ninklat, is known for, just as a, a standalone movie, is a movie called Boyhood. 
a movie starring Ethan Hawke as well, and a, a cast of other actors as well, where one of the central themes in it is the passage of time. And it, they kind of took a, well, he, he took a real-time approach to filming this boy over, I believe it was 10 or 12 years. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is that there's a similar theme in this movie series as well, where we let the time pass in real life. The first movie, as uh, James said, 95, the second, 2004. So there's a passage of time waiting to see what happens to these characters. And I don't remember, I'm sure there's other films that have done this before, but for some reason, it's just so poignant and powerful in this movie series. First question I want to ask you, James, did you watch these movies when they actually came out? Uh, I, I, I would have been about 15 when the first movie came out. So I don't think I saw that until I was probably in my mid twenties, uh, which is more age appropriate, even yeah. though it, everything is very nineties in the first movie. Yeah. Uh, I did see the second movie, not in the theater, but I did see it, uh, as soon as it came out on DVD, I was very excited to see it, uh, because I really enjoyed the first one. So you didn't watch both of these movies back to back. There was a little bit of time between. Now I'm very interested to find out how much time you think there was between you watching the two movies. About second movie was 2004, probably only like uh, three, four years. Same, exactly the same. And I'm tying. I'm the whole reason I'm bringing this up is because I feel because this movie has that passage of time that you. Everyone was wondering when the first movie was made, would they make another one? And as soon as the second one was made and that you can see there's a real sense of time delay in the movie, it honestly, it's, it's used really well. It sounds kind of corny and it doesn't even sound like much, but when you watch these movies, it really hits home and it really feels like you're growing with the characters. Uh, I, I guess I better tip my hat and say I really, really enjoyed these movies. The reason why... We're not going to be talking about Before Midnight, the third in the trilogy, is because the fans, Ethan Hawke, Judy Depp playing Richard Linklater, everyone is kind of unanimous on saying the tone is different. And the way the second movie ends, it feels like a deliberate to be continued, where the first one, I feel like it was more, it could have just ended. It could have just been a movie about two people who meet for a day and that's it. But after the second one, I think the trajectory and the, the tone slightly changed, and I feel like it warrants its own discussion for many reasons, many, 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 many reasons, but I just wanted to separate the, these 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 discussions. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, you know, between the, the second and third movie, real time passed for me, so I, I was nine years later that I saw the third movie, and... Um, like I said, I'm always just like age-wise. I'm always a little bit off. I'm never quite the same age as these characters when the movies come out. Uh, so it sometimes takes me a few years to catch up and uh, and for me to fully get it. Before Midnight, at the time that I saw it, just came off as a horror movie. <laughs> and I can appreciate it in a different way now, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, tonally, it is it is a, a completely different movie. And I really want to have a much deeper discussion about that. And James, I'm going I'm to tell the listeners right now, I want to do that discussion for Before Midnight <laughs> in honour of the series, nine months 
from when we release <laughs> this discussion. I want to revisit before midnight nine months. Let's let's let it sizzle. But in the meantime, I want to go back and I want to ask you: You watch these movies, James? How did you feel about them? Yeah, I. It's funny because I haven't seen them in in quite a while, and um, my reaction to the first one in in the very beginning, in the first like twenty minutes of it, my reaction to the first one was, "My God, are these people pretentious and full of themselves?" <laughs> and I was really kind of annoyed by them. And then what kind of dawned on me was, "Oh yeah, you were kind of annoying and pretentious at that age too, weren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> just like I had to kind of reframe things in my mind to to go back to being around 23 and but I I think also too there was a, a feeling for me for the first one of that these two are clearly from more affluent families mm. and so while the feelings that they're having for each other I could relate to I couldn't relate to their lives in the same way um i mean there, there was this feeling of like you know ethan hawk especially he's he's sort of backpacking through europe to find himself a little bit and i'm like well i have no frame of reference for what that must be like uh, <laughs> privileged <laughs> yes very very privileged uh but i it you know what what finally occurred to me is i'm i'm watching it and i'm kind of again i'm kind of annoyed by them and stuff but i'm thinking okay i have kids that are that age now and this is something that would i would wish for them to have it if i can't quite relate to it anymore it's something that would be wonderful if it happened to them and and even them being a little bit privileged and able to kind of uh you know have these existential conversations because money isn't really e even though ethan hawk is sort of like oh i don't really have a lot of money on me right now it's sort of a charming poverty it's very temporary it's very bohemian i think he thinks it's really uh kind of cool that he doesn't have any money on him you know that he's gonna get home and daddy's gonna <laughs> hand him some cash so it's not really that big a deal he literally says that in the second movie that is that had especially not to get into too many spoilers, but later he in the second movie he talks about how he he had cash to come back, and he had to borrow cash from his dad. A lot, of, I think it was two thousand dollars. It wasn't like mm -hmm. an exorbitant amount of money, but definitely a sense of privilege there. So I can, you know, what James through our discussions, I love how you bring that up a lot. Um, you know, you can't relate to characters, and uh, it's really funny because you know we we talk about Woody Allen, we love his films, and there's a sense of privilege and class in there as well do you feel like well you always you already said you, you try to separate your kind of bias your anger towards that or your frustration towards that from the movie itself and appreciate you know the movie from that even if they seem privileged does that usually bother you in all movies or do you is, is that a pet peeve for you in general it, it depends on the movie i think uh woody always is able to do it in a way where it it especially if he is playing the character, it doesn't seem to bother me as much because there's something very working class about him, even when he's playing somebody who obviously has a lot of money. Mm. Whereas in this or marriage story for is a, another good example. There's this feeling of, 
oh, our, our, our problems are so dramatic. And I'm like, yeah, but you have food. And, you know, you have like a, a you know, I, I can't remember the ungodly amount of money that Adam Driver writes a check for to get Ray Liotta as his lawyer for, but, the, you know, you, he could just write that check. And that detaches me a little bit from those characters. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I brought this up, just to, I know that's kind of, why is he bringing this up? It's a bit irrelevant. As a person, this is something you hear black people do all the time. As a person of color, we always say, mm. oh, them privileged white people, you know, they're traveling in Europe, you can't relate to that. So it's always funny you being, you know, a white well, person. Well, and when I, was, when I was that age, I lived in neighborhoods mostly with black people. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. I, I didn't have, uh, I had no money, I had no... So I was living in like the poor neighborhoods where maybe that's, I can relate to it a little bit more in, in that way. And that I just, whenever I hear rich people complain about their, their problems, it always makes me roll my eyes a little bit. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not making, I don't want to make it a colorful, it's just an observation. I'm like, wow, well, the, the white people complain about classism yeah. in movies as well and being privileged. That's, that's pretty cool. Cause I think it's a, when they hear black people make those complaints, it's a bit tired. And that's why honestly, that's my observation as well, James. I'm right there with you, mm-hmm. but I just don't bring it up because it's something that uh, people of color always bring up a lot. White privileged people and their white romance movies and together. So I didn't really want to say anything, but oh, since yeah. you brought it up, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think my, my girlfriend my girlfriend didn't want to watch these movies with me, and I knew if she sat down and watched them with me, I would have to hear the words "white nonsense." Yeah, at least a, a dozen <laughs> times per movie. So yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And I will, I'll jump in here, here and say, I, I, I saw it, but again, I'm more used to it as a person of color, just seeing it, especially in the nineties where you see, you know, more interracial couples or even any kind of colored couples, they can't go extravagantly in on these kind of trips. There, there weren't a lot of films like that in the nineties for people of color. Again, this isn't against the spite against the film, just talking about Hollywood in general, not against this film, but saying that there wasn't any people of color in this movie. I don't think I saw hardly any black people but that's neither here nor there <laughs> the movie honestly i agree with you i thought it was a little bit pretentious and everything they're talking about is a bit highfalutin and although they're having those existential conversations but i told you one thing cut all through that it would have bothered me just like you but even re-watching it now i felt like you know what at least they seem genuine at least yeah. the actors Ethan Hawke and Judy Deppley are pulling off so well. It seems like they really are pondering. And that goes back to the, the making of this movie, the conversation. It's legitimate. It's Well, the, the first movie is Richard Linklater's brainchild. Like, Judy Deppley and Ethan Hawke weren't as involved from the writing perspective in the first movie than they were in the second and third. This is all from the mind of Richard Linklater. And I've got so many clips I want to share with the audience. But I, w- I want to tell you this, James, right out of the bat. We might have enjoyed this first movie, even with, you know, some, certain observations. But a lot of people think these movies are very talky. It's just mm-hmm. dialogue-based. The, the storyline's very simple. Just two people falling through each other, and having a romantic evening, afternoon, morning together. And some people just find it dull. I saw a lot of you saying that, oh, this is just dull. Even if you're, even it's one of my friends said to me, even if you're comparing this to Woody Allen movie, there's a level of cinematography. There's a level of, you know, t- changing scenes. This is, it feels like the camera's just following them and there isn't a lot here. 
I guess I can agree with that. But before we dive more into the first movie, I, I want to really, as fans of the movies, I want to play clips of the thought process behind these movies, especially about them being talky, because I think the director has a very, very interesting thought process that I want to I wanna get your thoughts on about making a movie based on conversation alone. And that's one of the things... One of the things that makes these movies stand out, they are dialogue driven and that's it. The plot is thin, but the, the, the interesting dialogue carries you through. And let's hear a little bit about the thought process on that from the director and the actors. One of the things that that interests me is how, how talky these films are and how they, they fly in the face of all of that film school wisdom that images should take precedence over words and uh, that uh, that there should be three acts and that the first turning point should be approximately, I forgot what Sid Field page says, 22. page, page yeah. 22. So, so this is a, this is, this is such a different experience, you know, and, um, and it, it flows in such, in such a different way. How intentional was that? And how much did you feel yourself resisting that, that model of the, um, the three act page 22? Well, the first part of that is just all the dialogue. And I think that's what it is when you're really getting to know someone. The idea of the first film was two people connecting. Mm -hmm. So that in real life, that is a very verbal conversational event. The first film was really just about trying to capture kind of something, you know, the, the intangible thing between these two people that... You know, it was a very minimalist design. Nothing great happened in the movie other than this connection. So I just remember wanting to make a film just about that, which entailed, it was really all conversation. But that must have been a different experience for 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 Ethan and, and Julie uh, to do so much dialogue in a film, you know. I feel like uh, I learned, I told Rick this, that on Before Sunrise, I learned how to talk on camera. I mean, most of the time, as an actor, they ask you really in certain ways to strike a certain pose or evoke a feeling mm -hmm. or emote. And Rick really wanted us to speak to each other. And it was, it was really challenging for me. And for Julia was her second language. And so it was extremely, both of us, it was so much work all the time. I remember we each had these people assigned to us to run lines with all the time. It was just, first film too? No, first film. First we, one. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I mean, Remember we Second used to go to that film. park and run lines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. And I just want to jump in and say that is the thing that really strikes me even after all these decades of this movie's existence. It's still entertaining and it's only the conversation. And the, ro the romance blossoms from the conversation, but the chemistry works. And I don't think I've ever seen a movie, even a Woody Allen movie, that just carried it through just on the conversation alone. And it really, the second movie takes us to a whole nother level, in my opinion. But the first movie, it's interesting. Their conversation are interesting. Them being young and having all these thoughts about the future. It's earnest. And it's it's a little bit corny and it's a little bit highfalutin in some aspects. But I still feel a joy and a charisma and this kind of, um, I feel like there's so they're expecting they, they have so much expectation and joy for life and the future and what it may bring that when you go back to it after watching the other two movies as well 
it puts the film in a whole new light, especially when you know what they become. And that's why this movie, even after rewatching it again and again, seeing their future, it really makes this a much more enjoyable watch because I picked up a lot more from the rewatch, especially knowing how their future goes. A lot of irony, especially knowing how their future goes. But um, this this film really is really well done. And it's it's apart from some visual stuff I'll get to in a moment, I'm, I find it very entertaining for just a conversational movie. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, it took me a little while to sort of readjust my brain and put myself back into being that age and, and what it would have been like for me, you know, what I felt when I watched the movie for the first time. And the movies definitely, they age with the characters. Yeah. The, the second and especially the third don't feel like, oh, they're just doing the same thing thing again even though they kind of are doing the same thing again yeah by just having it be a conversation between two people but they're in such different places in their lives each time and that first movie is entirely about their innocence they're starting to become a little bit jaded but again it's sort of a it's jaded in a way that they don't they kind of don't know what they're talking about because they haven't lived enough they're sort of regurgitating things that they've read uh, and they're they're trying to sound a little bit maybe older than they are the way that yeah. you do when you're that age yeah and uh and they you know even though they do both mention you know that they had pretty good childhoods and everything you ne- like i said there's that 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 we might pick up on on them being kind of affluent and everything but they don't even either they don't recognize it because it's just their lives or they don't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed and they're trying to sound like they're these tortured young people you know struggling to find who they are and everything it it does a really i don't know how old richard linkletter was compared to the actors at the time but uh he really does recapture that that feeling of being that age and everything being kind of new yeah and um oh the i find because the movie's so straightforward it's just these two just talking and so many people are falling in love with the conversation but and the other films kind of as i said before make you fall back in love with how you know the kind of humble beginnings i have to admit when we said we was going to rewatch these movies this movie out of the three was the most forgettable mm-hmm. before i rewatched it i thought to myself because the, the first two the next two movies i have such a strong energy very very powerful energy that this one i thought oh this is the one where they just fall for each other this is the one where they're just you know la di da happy happy and you know when i watched it again i felt sad for them <laughs> because mm-hmm. they were so optimistic and they, in, like you said, they did, they, they borderlined on being, I don't want to say emo for a sense, but they did act a bit like Torture Sold. And if it wasn't for their performance and the earnestness, like I really, it really felt like what they were saying came from a true place. And as Ethan Hawke said that he learned to talk during these movies and he, there was so much, when I was, there's a lot of research you can do about these movies because they speak a lot about this movie, making this movie, and putting himself into the movie was so essential to Richard Linklater because of his own personal experience. And I've got a, a bit of a longer clip that Ethan, I want to play this clip from Ethan Hawke talking about how he was kind of roped into this 
and why Richard Linkler, Richard Linkler making this movie at this particular time, he was motivated. And I really like this clip. This is about a two minute clip that Ethan Hawke was talking about that. And it really did make me think, this is cool, man. Because Ethan Hawke, at the time he made this movie, just, I don't know, he was his star was starting to rise, Dead Poets Society, a, a few other things. But I liked how Richard hooked Ethan with this movie. And I want to hear, let's hear Ethan talk about that a little bit now. And then I got the offer for the movie and I told Rick, I met him somewhere and I said, look, you know, I really do want to do this movie, but if you had offered me anything after I saw Days Confused and Slacker, I'd just say, yes. you didn't have to show me the script and I'd say yes. But now that I've read the script, I don't think this is possible. A movie mm -hmm. of the two, I mean, you know, my dinner with Andre with two young people is going to be really impossible to pull off. Mm -hmm. And, um, I said, well, you know, what makes you say that? And I teased him about, there were some incredibly long monologues in the original script. I remember there was one where literally my character talked about John Huston's The Dead and how it related to Meister Eckhart, okay, um, for pages. Right? And I'm like, this is impossible to pull off. You know, I mean, I don't know how to attack this speech. Like, mm -hmm. what are you, how are we going to do that? And he just laughed and, and, uh, and he had just, he's a person who's absolutely void of ego about it. He just laughed. Really? You think so? And, um, he wrote me a letter, a lot of which I ended up putting in the opening of Before Sunset, which is he basically said to me, look, I've never been in a helicopter crash. I've never been involved in the espionage. I've never been in a, uh, any, any gunplay whatsoever. But my life has been really dramatic. You know, it's been full of drama. And the most interesting thing that ever happened to me really is that feeling when you connect with another human being, of true connection with another human being. And I want to make a movie about that and that only. Mm -hmm. Doesn't need to have some elaborate plot. You can tell me that Meister Eckhart or John Huston's a dead or not interesting if you want. But... It's interesting to me because of what that says about the character, if he is interested in those things. And, and people in real life just sometimes talk about a movie. You know, I'm like, he said, so listen, you can like the script or not like the script. What I'm doing is I'm inviting you to come to Vienna with Julie Dalpy and I. I want to make a movie about you two people connecting and you're going to create your character and she's going to create her character. And we're going to do something. We're going to try to do something that nobody's seen before. So how do you say no to that, right? And so we did it. I mean, I'm not saying we did that, what he said, but we we went to Vienna and we tried to do that. And if that's the intention that Rich Linkler had, I think he executed it. But even he would admit, and in another interview he does, the movie didn't make much money. It was seen of little interest it's only after the second movie that it really came together and built this really cult following, which we'll get into. But um, yeah, the first movie, rewatching it again, I think the the next two movies helped bolster it in a way. I'm not saying it's not interesting, it's not good, but as you said at the beginning, it's very 90s, it has good intentions. And on its own, if this if this movie never had any sequels and it was just this movie, I think it's an interesting idea. How powerful it comes across about two people making a connection. The only thing that kind of gets in the way is that they're, as you said, not as relatable because 
of their highfalutin talk and they just seem a little bit too privileged so that's the barrier that's the barrier i'm like eh. but i will say judy they're playing ethan hawk have a lot of chemistry i mean in their first kiss in the movie is is very sweet and i do feel like the actors brought it home and made it believable as well as the dialogue as well as you know the walking and the time and but i just felt that if he had the wrong actors it wouldn't work as a standalone movie on its own it's it's good it's decent but if it wasn't for the next two movies as i'm not sure how i don't know if this movie would have made a massive mark but as part of a trilogy it's a fantastic start to what's to come there, there are those movies that that happens sometimes where you know i mean they're usually movies like this don't usually get their own franchise so when there's a movie like for instance i remember walking out of batman begins and thinking no oh, that was all right mm. and then in seeing the dark knight it recontextualized the first movie exactly and it made it oh this is part one of this bigger thing yeah uh, I remember walking out of the second Lord of the Rings really disappointed and thinking, oh, that wasn't as good as the first one. And then mm. after seeing the third one going, oh, I'm seeing it now as all one big story. And that that makes the second movie much better when I know that what it's building toward. And yeah, watching this movie this time, because I don't think I've watched, I don't think I have watched this movie since the third one came out. Mm. And watching it now, knowing what happens in the third movie, there are lines where you're like, ooh, yeah, that's going to come back to haunt you. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly, yes. And it it, it definitely made it like uh, something where it's almost like, you know, seeing something, this is very, very a different situation, but seeing something after somebody has died and they say certain things and it, it almost foreshadows like what their, their fate is going to be. Um, and I don't want to get too much into the third movie, but there is sort of a, there's a death of something in the third movie, not a person, but maybe just the, the maybe the people that they were in the first movie are mm, really yeah. kind of dead by yeah. the third movie. Yes. Yes. And that really makes the, the first movie feel kind of haunting now to see it. And it makes it realistic. It really, really does. And funny enough, I got, you know what, James? I was thinking this. I know we're not going to talk about the third movie now. We're going to talk about that movie a lot because it's, yeah. it, that third movie has driven so much conversation because I wouldn't call it controversial, but a lot of fans say they don't feel the third movie is as enjoyable as the first two. Not as good as enjoyable. And I think that's an interesting comment we'll dive um, into later. But what do you, what, I was thinking this after watching the first movie. What do you think if there was no second movie and it was just the first movie and the third movie? That's, oh, a, that's a little tease. <laughs> that's a little tease. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, because honestly, yeah. I feel like the third movie connects to this first one even more than the second one gets to the first one. And there's, there's a lot of reasons why I say that, but pretty much you know what actually you just said it because a lot of what they say in the first movie comes to bite them in the ass in the third movie mm. especially about being older and what they want this first movie would be bleak if it just went from the first to the third yeah yeah you needed that 
that second movie to kind of, um, you know, to show that this wasn't just a, 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 a one night thing and they, you know, they're just young and, and they connected with another person and then they moved on. And then the, to see that these two people are sort of, have spent the last nine years haunted by each other, that they haven't yeah. been able to forget each other and move on. And uh, that, without that, if you just went from the first movie and you were like, okay, that they, they really did meet up six months later and then they got married and they had kids and everything and then you get to the third movie, yeah. that third movie would just be uh, unwatchable for how bleak it would be. <laughs> and I think there's some directors that will jump. I think there's some directors that will jump for the first and the third. But you know what? Before we go, we're going to go to the second movie now because unless you've got more to say about the first movie, because I was, I want to talk, I don't think the cinematography is is great, even though that's not his focus. He just wants to focus on the characters. You know, seeing Vienna, it's okay. And there's some side characters and stuff like that. But before we get to the second one, is there anything else you want to touch on about the first movie? No, the first movie is, again, I mean, it, it gets recontextualized by the, second and third movie but it's on its own it's pretty lightweight it's, yeah there's not a ton to it and yeah. uh it's only in the subsequent movies that it it uh can be reevaluated, and you can see like the, the deeper yeah. meanings in it exactly and i want to play you this funny clip i laughed so hard when same interview i just played from ethan hawk but yeah this was this made me laugh this is again i want to focus on the first two this is about the first movie and I remember Julie once saying, this is, this movie is boring. <laughs> like we need to call someone to write some jokes. Like this, this is really boring, Rick. And, and Rick said, I, I, I've been with you in Vienna for six weeks and I haven't been bored for one second. All right. And so if you can be as interesting and whole as you are here in this room in front of the camera and somebody's bored, in a two-hour movie, then I don't like them. Mm. I don't care if they don't like our movie, because they, that's somebody that's not. That's not a you know. That's not who I'm making this movie for. And that opened up a door of us going, oh, okay, all right. We don't have to work in a narrative sense the way that because the one thing you could kind of in our brains you could compare before Sunrise Two was like a Woody Allen film or. It might dinner with Andre maybe or something. But Rick was saying, no, I, it doesn't need to work like either of those. It needs to work in a totally different way. We're going to let time move in a, in a unique way or in his way. Well, Ethan, since you brought up Woody Allen, let's talk about that. <laughs> if uh, Woody Allen did the first movie, um, I mean, the Woody Allen... The, one other thing I will say about uh, before... Um, sunrise which is cool i do feel like it's very balanced in a woody allen movie i feel like his character kind of takes over he's he's got the most charisma or the main character who's a woody allen archetype kind of takes over where i feel like the before series is very evenly balanced which is very well done which is a, which is why probably in today's age it would work a lot better people would be more fond of it as well since it's such you know julie depley is phenomenal if I want to talk about yeah. the actor that stands out, for me, I love Ethan Hawke. One of my favorite actors of all time. When I'm, I'm going to recommend the movie, a totally different movie he did that no one even talks about. But Judy Depley is a superstar in these movies. She is a 
a, a force of nature. And even in this first one, in this first one, my memory of her was not as aggressive or not as powerful as the other two. But watching, I'm like, no, she is the same person. Actually, she just doesn't have that edge and that sourness that seems to develop over time a little bit. But she's the seeds are there, and she's just definitely the same person. So I was, I actually, I felt a little bit slighted toward Judy Deppley on my memory. But no, in this first one, she is just as good as she is in the other in the other two as well. Yeah, I mean, she's. Um, this is her again, like a, a Ethan Hawke too. Ethan Hawke's a little bit more. It's funny how they kind of flip in the second one because in the first one he's more the cynic. He is, yeah, and. In the second one, she is. Yeah, and, and, the, and the third. <laughs> and the third. But yeah, in the first one, he's, you know, he's trying to convince her that the the palm reader is, you know, full of shit. And, yeah. you know, he's, he kind of makes fun of some things. And, then the, and the, the poem movie, guy, the poem, poem guy, guy as well. Yeah, he didn't really just make that up. Um, <laughs> but in the, in the second movie, it's her going, no, the world is a mess and everything's terrible. And yeah. there's nothing to be hopeful about. And uh they've they've sort of flipped uh in that way by the second movie but she's yeah she's really she she brings a, a you can see why he falls in love with her yeah it's it's and and you know the only person that i ever felt i think in a in a woody allen movie that he had that with was diane keaton like yeah. you're right in in other movies his persona overtakes the whoever he's with and it's not a balanced partnership and diane keaton to me was the only one who could get him could could sort of stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and and hold the screen just as well as he could all right you know what let me stop you there and say i'll give credit where credit's due mia farrell some movies she did meet woody tit for tat broadway danny rose yes for sure Yes, yes, yes. So I'll give her I'll give her credit with credit's due there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um let's move on talking about the next movie, Before Sunset. I will tell you, James, right out of the gate, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. Before Sunset is a masterpiece to me. And this is one of the movies I've actually watched the most in my life. There was a time I was watching this movie every month because it was like everything in the first movie, everything they did with the conversation, with the chemistry, it felt so much more real because the passage of time, because, you know, you can, you can consider the ending of the first movie to be sad, bittersweet because, you know, they're separated and then, you know, in this movie, they're going to get back together. But the, the first time I watched this movie, I was so excited to see what was going to happen and I tell you, the, this movie at the end only left me wanting more, which is why I kept on rewatching it, rewatching it, conversation. I felt like I didn't get enough, but then I felt like it was enough. I was pining for it. Everything from the cinematography, the music, what they're talking about. It's in my mind a perfect movie, honestly. Even though it ends on a, I don't want to say a cliffhanger, quote unquote, but there's something about this movie to me before sunset that is absolutely beautiful absolutely beautiful and i don't know i'm sorry to gush a little bit i'm, <laughs> I'm showing you my cards james i mm. adore before sunset it is fucking amazing but um how do you feel about the second movie this is the best of the three and 
I, I it's funny. I, I don't, I never saw the ending as a cliffhanger. I, I knew ex- like looking at Ethan Hawke's face, I yeah. knew exactly what he was going to do. Yeah. And I'll tell you, at first I saw this movie and I'm 24 years old and I'm thinking to myself, he's kind of a creep. He's married. He's got a kid, you know, he's, he's, uh, gonna gonna run away with this other woman and maybe he's not that great a guy and then a couple of years later i'm with a woman and uh you know i have a kid she has two kids we're raising our kids together and i get this was back when it was it was my space at the time (laughs) (laughs) and uh i get a message from that girl i get a message from the one that that I was stuck on, that I had that moment with, like he, like uh, his character had with uh, Julie Dapley, and and I'm thinking in my head, oh shit, what am I gonna do? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm, all she, I remember all she wrote me was, "Hi, how you been?" And instantly in my head, I was like, if she said, "Hop on a plane and and come to me," I. I don't know that I wouldn't. Yeah. And after that, I kind of got it. Where you, you're in a relationship. It's not, it's not great. You know, you maybe you know he, he had gotten his his wife pregnant, so you get the feeling like he wasn't really, he wasn't marrying her for love. He was doing it out of obligation, and yeah. he he looks like he's definitely struggling to do the right thing in the second movie, but you also see that as uh, to me, as soon as he sees her, he's made up his mind. Yeah. And you know, the whole rest of the movie, I don't see him struggling with it. I see him just going, I know what maybe everybody would say I should do, but I know what I'm going to do. And, uh, I, I would, the only, the only maybe thing I had a problem with is, this this a little bit in the first movie, but more so in the second one. He seems to really jump straight into wanting to talk about sex, <laughs> and I'm 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 a little I was a little bit like, all right, dude, roll it back. Like, really? You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel that way at all. I didn't. I, I know there's a scene like uh, we're gonna on this. I could talk about the second movie. The second movie could have been its own podcast, but I'm gonna rein it mm. in. But they have so little touch. Even in the second movie, they don't even touch oh, yeah. as much. They never kiss in the whole movie. They, yeah. they, they, I mean, it's to me, it's in some ways, it's the less obviously romantic movie. Yes. Because in the first one, they're young. They just give into it. They're just like, okay, we're just going to, you know, we might die tomorrow. Let's just live for today. And this is them being disappointed and, and, thinking you know life didn't work out the way they yep. wanted it to and yeah. uh and again to me when you you see it now in the context of the third movie there's a little bit also now i see partly i see i see what i saw the first time i saw it which is like these two people really were in love and they really were you know they found each other they were made for each other and then when i look at it now through the lens of having seen the third movie I also think they were 32 and they were disappointed by life and they yeah. were just remembering this one night where everything was great. Yeah. And 
maybe they missed the boat. Maybe they missed they, the chance. <laughs> they, well, they missed the, they missed the boat, but they also once they reconnect, they're so desperate to get back to that way that they yeah. felt that yeah. maybe they aren't fully meant for each other. Yeah, and that they're not perfect together because really all they've had together is like less than not even close to 24 hours together. No, no. Yeah. So it does, again, it's, it's what's great about this being a film series now is every movie can inform the other movies Yeah, in ways that, um, you know, something like, like a, a Marvel movie can't do it. You know, you might see, Oh, you know, there's, they're mentioning something and that happened in Iron Man too, but it's just sort of like an Easter egg or a throwaway these movies it's always like foreshadowing that wasn't meant to be foreshadowing or going back to something that they uh was referenced in the second movie and informs the third movie but it also informs the first movie and puts it in a different context and i can't think of any other film series that does that yeah james the second movie uh i don't the disappointment they didn't get the fairy tale ending there's a really everything about this movie oozes with realism and just you know what let me say this at the time i watched this movie unlike you i wasn't in a relationship at all but things weren't going right for me and i was i was again in my 30s as well and i was disappointed with the trajectory of my love life as well and then to see that you know these two characters i had this one night this one stereotypical i mean you know american guy picks up a french girl mm-hmm. and she references in the movie as well he just want to fuck me and leave me and it's so funny but watching this movie and the disappointment and the angst and the longing there's so much longing in this movie but there's this acceptance for what they've did and the choices they've made but as you said they're trying to still recapture it and man i uh, honestly again being a fan of woody allen and watching all these movies and seeing the movie like this, it blew me away because I'm like, I've seen hints of this and love a lot of Woody Allen movies, but it's just nice to see someone else do such a focused effort on, on this concept and it done so well. You know, when we talk about Woody Allen, you know, when we talk about um the movie, I can't remember. Every time I've been on this movie, I can't remember with Mia Farrow and Jeff Daniels, the Purple Rose of Cairo. And we talk mm-hmm. about how that movie ended, you know, in a kind of realistic way. You don't get what you want and it, the disappointment. But still, but still, you, you might look at it at, you know, that's life. you got to push on. I love that in this movie. But I love the fact that they're catching up with each other in this movie. They've got nine years to reconnect, but there's not enough time. Ethan Hawke's got a goal. He read this corny book that she, you know, is bitter kind of about. And she calls him on all of his shit. But she's, I wouldn't call her manic depressive, but she has all these crazy thoughts and he's depressed, she's depressed and they don't know what to do. They can't really touch each other. They think they've missed their soul. But the cinematography here shines. I know 10 years later, Richard Linklater shows his eye. It looks beautiful. Just as good as a Woody Allen movie, really. Music's on point. It's so memorable. And the camera follows them on the lovely boat ride. A lot of people say that, the taxi scene or the cab scene with them is iconic mm-hmm. where Celine, Judy Delpley just breaks down and has a go at him. And it is wonderful. Uh, I don't know what to say. And the fact, and you know, the way the movie ends is perfect. Mm-hmm. It's so perfect. 
the fate of black Nina simone and judy deppley singing i'm being so scatterbrained because i could just pick this this that this this that this that but let's just let's go back to the core of the whole thing the conversation i want to play a clip of something reaching nick that i touches upon which i think is very interesting and this is something i just want you to to comment on james this is something that we always hear about in cinema that he's going against but I have always rebelled against that. I remember, her, you know, the great Sam Fuller, you know, I remember him speaking at a thing. He says, cinema's about, don't talk about it, show it. Yes, you know, sir. and every film yeah. RTF teacher will say, you know, it's a visual medium, just, you know, you to show, you don't talk about it. You don't talk about a character and experience. You show them having the experience, but I never, I never approached cinema like that. It never, I always thought people talking was so evocative and what they're describing, it has a double effect. People talking can be wonderfully cinematic. Really. Yeah. Cause not only does it conjure what they're talking about in the viewer's mind, cause you're not showing it to me, it's more interesting because you, not only do you get the essence of them and what they're saying, but also what they're talking about. I think Richard Linklater is one of the only directors that I've seen carved that knife so masterfully because i don't think i i agree with what he's saying but i actually don't think it's as easy to pull off as he just said because i do think you know cinema is a visual medium and we do like to show not tell what he's done with this franchise i hate to call it a franchise with the series i should say is he really has made the art of conversation compelling and um but what, what do you think of that james well you know i mean i it, it almost sounds a little modest to me because you know the you could some people maybe would accuse these movies of you know uh telling and not showing there's some moments in this in in all three movies but like i mean for instance like the first movie i think of when they go into the the booth to listen to the record together yeah and they're not talking but he's kind of looking at her and this sort of range of expressions is going on across his face and then she's looking at him uh, you mentioned the cab scene. There's that part where, you know, he's kind of looking out the window and she reaches for him and she wants to touch him, but she thinks better of it and yeah. she pulls her hand away. And that that is them showing. And to me, almost like that's the, the story is what they're not saying, especially in the second movie. But the story is... You know, their, their conversation is just their conversation. The story is the way they look at each other and, you know, the way that, uh, and their body language and things like that. It's not, the conversation is just a conversation that they're having. And that's what uh, Linkletter does so brilliantly in these movies. And it's, I've been, it's been a long time since I've seen the third movie. So I'm interested to sort of revisit that and, yeah, see same. if that really follows through but the the way that even the way that they don't look at each other says so much about what's happening yeah that you know this isn't like a you know it's not some movies they feel like they could be um like plays and you know you could just have two people walking and maybe like the background is on a like a roller and you're just moving that throughout the whole day. or the background is there's no background you're just supposed to imagine what they're walking through and it could be very simplistic it wouldn't work as a play because you have to see their faces up close to to see what they're thinking and feeling and um only 
cinema can do that. And he, he absolutely, th this is a cinematic movie. Yeah. It's not just, a, you know, a, a, like they, there's plenty of movies that I've seen that, that, you know, look like they could just be a stage play and they're boring because a stage play and a movie are very different. This doesn't feel like that to me. Well, this this second movie was the beginning of the true collaboration. Richard Linklater wrote the first one completely. They did work on it, as we heard in the previous clip, but this second movie was where they each became the writers of the movie. And same for the third movie. They each wrote every line. They went back and forth, the collaborative process. And I'm going to play a clip about that right now. And then the dynamic, too, between them. And I wanted this for the very first film. The film before this, I'd made a very male film. Dazing and Views kind of slants toward the, the young men. And mm -hmm. I said, I really want to make one as much as possible that's male and female. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's not from his point of view or her point of view. It's good we all listen to each other, but I feel like because I'm the only woman in the room when we work, they both listen to me maybe more than a usual kind of co-writing. I think we always end up having a, the three of us agreeing on what we're doing. It's kind of a good balance to have three people because it's not two people arguing. It's been a really magical dynamic all three times. Sometimes it gets down to simple like details, word choices. I don't like that word. Could mm -hmm. it be this word? Yeah. And sometimes it's super thematic. You know, you can fight for an idea, but if it doesn't talk to the two others, you know, eventually it's drop, you know, and unless it's an idea that you'll fight all the way through. But I, I don't think we've ever had that fully. I missed a bit of that clip, but I'll finish it off. So they were talking about whenever they would write the dialogue for each character, they would mix who takes turns and saying what. Like, for example, a lot of people might watch these movies and think, oh, Ethan Hawke wrote all his character's lines and Judy Dewey all her character. No, they would jump in between and say, no, actually, I want you to say that to me. And I want her to say that to him. And they all mix in. It's a completely collaborative process. And it feels so natural. But... One of the things that looking behind the scenes that disappointed me was, and to be honest, it's kind of a backhanded compliment, is that apparently they rehearsed the hell out of these movies. When you watch these movies, it might just seem like they're naturally flowing with a conversation, but apparently they rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. It's all scripted. They they pour oh every time they take the years to make these movies, they've been pouring over each line, especially the last two movies, because it was the three of them that wrote the last two. They pour over every single line and they take turns, they fine tune it. And the second movie was the first time they really went for it. And in terms of energy, the second and third movie are very powerful dialogue, dialogue driven movies for the passion of the characters and there and it comes across so well but the thing that drives me a lot more in the second movie is that they've had a lot of life experience i can tell that ethan hawk and judy Deppley are putting themselves into these characters and the things they're talking about and in the interviews have said it they're bringing from their own lives their perspectives this is really them to a certain yeah. extent this is actually them in real life just adding things to these characters building that foundation and that's why it feels so natural but there's a weight to the loss a weight to the longing a weight to the disappointment and mixing reality with the fiction and the scripting and the collaboration and the cinematography and everything which Nick has learned between the first and the second movie well from the first movie to the second movie it really culminates 
in this masterpiece. And uh, Julie Deppley does a lot of the singing. The mm. opening scene, I believe she sings it. Beautiful French song. She does the, the end credit. She does so much musical elements this that just feel phenomenal. I think Woody Allen would be proud. He'll be like, I, you know what? I dare say, if Woody Allen watched this movie, he'll say, you know what? I'm not even going to touch this. <laughs> mm. I don't think Woody Allen would change this. And quite frankly, I say this proudly, this movie is a, it's way better than a lot of Woody Allen movies. Oh, God. Well, well I don't want to get into it yet, but we, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about Rifkin's Festival. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we will, but, we will. Uh, yeah, this is... Well, I mean, even to some extent, like the rainy day in New York, I think some people could see it that as being very much like, uh, or at least it's supposed to be like uh, before sunset and uh, before sunrise. And and if this is one of those, maybe the first one I can think of where, you know, we always say, what would Woody do? And there's always sort of something interesting that, oh, he might have done this. He might, Woody would have screwed this up. There would be... Agreed. There'd be a lot of, you know, he'd do the jazz soundtrack and, you know, I'm imagining even, I mean, especially if like, you know, at the time that the first movie came out in the 90s, he was going through that late middle age phase where all of his uh, love interests were Julia Roberts or uh, oh, yeah. oh, somebody God. in their mid to late 20s. Mighty and, Aphrodite, uh, yeah. I always love you. Yeah, you're right. Ugh. Yeah. And I seeing Woody Allen and Julie Depley in the movie together would have been awful. Crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, while he sort of plays his typical character and there's Coltrane playing in the background or something. And no, he... he he wouldn't have been able to do this as well as Richard Linklater did. And you could see the Woody Allen influence in it. Yeah. Uh, as well as influence from like other, other filmmakers. But no, this is, this would be the first one where I would say that uh, he would, he should watch it as an audience member, not ever touch it. Yeah. I mean, whew, there's not much more I can say. I love the second movie. I think it's phenomenal. In some ways, when the second movie was released, I wasn't sure. Well, I kind of knew that they were going to do a third one. I mean, I'll play a clip in a minute where they pretty much said that the third one was almost a guarantee because by the time the second one came out, there was it was getting more of a cult following, especially when he announced the second one was coming out. And, you know, that was, wow, wow, wow. They're going to get back together. And since the second one came out, cult cult following people love the series the third one's a different story which we'll get to i know we've been teasing it we'll get to that but there's so much i want to talk about uh when it comes to the third movie as a movie on its own but yeah the first two movies they complement each other um the first movie is a story and the second movie is like the reality to me it's like the fairy yeah. tale and the second movie is the reality mm. and it's a it's a just a realistic sweet movie that you just hear so much i don't want to just say drama but you just it's just so much passion i think the second movie is so passionate passionate and beautiful to me it's one of my favorite movies of all time um and you know i you know i'm actually surprised the thing i got from watching the second movie again is it's so much callbacks to the first one i don't remember yeah. them being so much callbacks to the first one 
that I could just name. I'm not going to it's a little bit corny, but so many callbacks I think is funny and the ending is so inspired. I think the ending is actually inspired because just that scene, it feels like a riff. For them to go to a house and it's just to play music, it just feels like you're a fly on the wall and this is just two people. This isn't a movie anymore. I feel like the movie just became more realistic as it went on. You know, and he was running out of time. Yeah. Everything about it was... In my mind, it's, it's a perfect movie because I couldn't floor it at all. There's nothing I would change about the second movie before Sunset. And I think it's a masterpiece. And honestly, I, if you haven't watched these two movies, they work so well back to back because it definitely complements the first one in, you know, take the stars out of your eyes. <laughs> well, what, what you said, I mean, the, the first one, it's it set over the course of an entire night. Yeah. Um, and it is a nighttime movie. The second one is a daytime movie and it's in pretty much real time and so there's a reality to the second one that isn't there in the first the first one is very much a fairy tale and uh the second one is disappointment that nothing has ever lived up to that and then you know again not to get too much into it but the third one is nothing could live up to that that nothing in your life could ever live up to what happened in that first movie. Nothing was going to, that wasn't sustainable. That wasn't something that could just go on forever. And that's something that you could only like, if they made this as like, again, like if you're doing it as a franchise and they're, they're doing it Lord of the Rings style and they're going to film all three of them at the same time. They just put old age makeup on uh, the characters as they get older. They would be terrible. Because you have to have that perspective of being those ages and the feeling that time has passed. Otherwise, it would just be pontificating about what, what they thought middle age was going to be like. And these movies just do such a great job. Of, I mean, the, I, I'm in agreement that at least maybe of all three movies, the, the scene in the cab at the end is the best scene for me. And it's especially when he starts talking about the dreams that he's had, which is something that I related to anybody who was in love when they were, when they were young and innocent. And there's sort of a, you know, as you get older, when you look back on it, you realize that it, it, it was maybe that person that you were with, but it was also who you were. It wasn't just, you know, it was your, your longing for a time when you were a different person. And, you know, him talking about, you know, how he wakes up sobbing and he can't explain it to his wife, why, you know, what he's feeling. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's real. It's something that I would feel sorry for people who couldn't relate to that. Who, who look at that and think, you know, who's a pussy? <laughs> you know? uh, I, I would feel sorry for anybody who didn't ever have that kind of really innocent love that they look back on. And, and it's bittersweet because, again, it's not something that's sustainable. Even if you ended up with the person, it's not something that's sustainable. But to have had it and look back on it is a beautiful thing. And before sunset really captures that. You know, believe it or not, I've heard a lot of people 
if you go on YouTube and you watch any of the clips he spoke about, you know, especially the 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 taxi clip or the cab clip with them with Julie Deppley just going off. Um the comments say this is the movie I started with. This is the movie. I went back and watched the other one. This is a great movie. If I hadn't watched the first one and watched this one first, I feel like I would have recognized it was still a very good movie. But I do feel like if you watch the first one, it just sets it sets the foundation for a masterpiece. If you watch the first one and watch this one, a second one again, I think it would work. I think you'll you enjoy it even more. But yeah, if you watch it in sequence, I think it's really great. And if you watch this, just the second one and the third one, I don't know. <laughs> well, and you know, the again, like I I went back and forth a little bit on like, oh, maybe we should have done all three at the same time. But you could watch the first one and the second one back to back, and definitely easily, yeah. But the if you just marathon straight through all three, no, nope, that's nope, going to leave nope, nope, such nope. a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, just yeah. You need a little time and perspective. The, the, if they had only made just the two, it would still be a great pair of movies. Yeah. The third movie does definitely enrich and everything that the first two, but you know, the, the first one, they both end on kind of hopeful notes. The second one, funnily enough, even more so ends on a hopeful note. I mean, the, the first one, yeah. you can kind of go, maybe they'll get back together. Maybe they won't. And the second one, you know, he's there to stay. He's not letting her go again. Yeah. And obviously we'll get to the third one, which tries to end on a hopeful note, but I don't know. <laughs> and, and and whatever whatever the possibility of the future for that series might be. Well, here's um uh, you know what, I left out one clip, but to be honest, with you, I should have played it before, but might as well. I've got it here. So this is actually how they came how the second one came about, I guess. And then we'll wrap up after this. So how did the band come together for the second one? How did you guys reunite? Or had you talked about it long before? Or? Well, there's an obvious thing that happened, which is that the, the first movie ends with such a question mark. Like they, at the last minute, decide to meet again in six months, which I love about it. It's, it, it, it dates the movie so much because what they would have done now is just exchanged emails at the last right. minute. But you couldn't do that. So um, they agreed to meet in six months. And... This is open question, and as we did press for the movie, we got asked so much do they meet again that I think we all wondered what happened to Jesse and Celine. And Rick started making this movie, Waking Life, and it's kind of a his dreamscape movie, and he wanted Jesse and Celine to have a dreamy appearance. And so the three of us got together again, and we wrote together that scene for him. He's mm -hmm. like, I want to do it the same way we did. He didn't want to like dictate to us what to say. Let's just, he got us in a room and explained the themes of the movie and what he was trying to, he wanted to know what Julie and I thought. Mm -hmm. So we all riffed and we wrote this little five page scene together, or three page scene together, whatever it is. And we walked out of there and I was like, man, this is, it's to say it's fun makes it sound like it's like, oh, we were like, you know, playing drinking games and having, it felt totally different than, all I do is make movies and plays. It's all I do with my life. And there's something about the room that felt so different. There's a unique, weird chemistry that inspires us. It's also not fun a lot of the times. I mean, it's it's argumentative sometimes, and it's, but it was interesting as hell. And the three of us walked out and thought, hey, should we make another movie together? I mean, what if we did make, what did happen to Jesse? See, so we were walking around Austin, I remember, 
we all just started riffing about what the hell happened to these two people? What do we think? And then the ball was in the air. And then um, I wrote a book and I was going around doing the book tour. Mm-hmm. And Rick introduced me at the Austin book tour. Mm-hmm. It was a paperback book tour of the hottest state or something. And, and Rick, we, we were going out to the country to, I don't know, do something with his daughter or something later that afternoon. And, and we were in his truck driving there. And he's like, I think I, I think I know what happens. I'm like, what? Is, what if Jesse wrote a book about the night and she showed up at the book tour? And, and he's like, I, I just, what, what if, he said, I just don't know what happens after that. And I was like, what if nothing happened? What if that's it? <laughs> what if that's the whole movie? And then it's just like, and we could, because we'd been riffing with tape. We'd been riffing on a real time movie. Like, mm-hmm. what about like the challenge of writing a real time movie? Like, like I, mm-hmm. how could you do that? And, and, and we got so excited. We called Julie and we're like, do you think this is good? And she, she was like, yeah. And so then that, Boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Then we next time we were all in LA, we got together for four days and we wrote out an outline for it. And you know, the funny thing is at this time, now you have to remember before Sunrise had, you know, it grossed, I think, two million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, we loved it, but there was no one else in the world that was like, oh great, a sequel to Before Sunrise. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I mean, I remember friends of mine saying, why would you do that? You, you know, and we just were we were in love with these characters and mm-hmm. felt like we had something to say about them. So that's how. The, so the muscle memory just snapped back in as you guys got together, or was it? It's something like um, it, it, the only thing I could equate it to is being on a team or in a band or something. It's like in that dynamic, everybody knows their role. Mm-hmm. Something about before sunrise have been such a powerful experience. That like when we're the three of us are together. My job is X. I don't even know how to define it, but I just, it happens. Rick does Y, you know, Julie does Z, and together something starts to happen. Yeah, man, there's a lot of clips of them getting together now. Reddit is going crazy trying to figure out because there's all these rumors. We'll talk about that more on the next recording for Before Midnight. But to be honest with you, and this is a long shot, but you never know. By the time we get to that nine months from now, which let's just say we're going to do before midnight in early 2022. So that'll be probably January, February. You will do before midnight. By then, there might already be a script. There might even be a trailer mm-hmm. for the next one because it is looking like a very big possibility. Ethan Hawke went on Instagram to talk about some ideas. Reddit's going crazy with the lot of the pandemic. People are making movies on the cheap. And, you know, I don't think in concept this is the hardest movie to make in the grand scheme of things but right now people love this franchise they want to see more even after the third movie uh but yeah it was interesting to hear how they got together for the second one i got clips about the third one more of the same very interesting stuff conceptually but yeah just to wrap up um oh actually one other thing that that movie ethan mentioned uh waking life the animated movie richard linklater made in 2001 where they have this scene of Jesse and Celine talking, that is pretentious as fuck. <laughs> if before Sunrise and Sunset was like that, mm-hmm. that was just them regurgitating a whole bunch of intellectual nonsense. So I was like, if this was the original two movies, I wouldn't have liked the series at all. So thank God that was just something to put in an animated movie mm-hmm. that looks meh. 
but I never watched that movie. But yeah, I'm glad that that isn't the kind of movie execution they've got for the first two before movies. So yeah, yeah, I saw that movie and uh, I I don't even remember it. I I think I saw it before I saw before sunrise. So I, the ah. context of who those characters were didn't mean anything to me. But but yeah, it, the, the, like you said, they definitely. Less so in the in the first movie, he's trying really hard. You know, he's talking about different books and, uh, you know, so-and-so said this or whatever. Uh, in the second movie, a lot of that pretension is gone because, you know, as you get older, it, it, it strips it away because real life is more interesting to talk about than something you read about in a book. And the, you know, the, the second movie elevates the first movie so much that if the if the second movie is a five-star movie and i think it is yeah the first movie without the second movie maybe three stars yeah but agreed. Agreed. in context i think it does bring it up to yeah. if nothing else like a four and a half agreed 100 percent agree that's a magical thing mm-hmm and when we talk about the third movie, we'll put them all, we'll, we'll revisit the whole score. <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty much it. We've gagged, we've gagged and gagged about the movie, um, the movies. And uh, yeah, we're looking for, I'm looking forward to, by the time we get to Before Midnight, to see what developments have come. Because they really do sound like they got on really well. They're really good friends. Richard Linklater, Julie Depley and Ethan Hawke. They really enjoy doing this. They know they got a franchise on their hands. So I, I honestly have no doubt there's going to be a fourth movie. I have no doubt. It's just about when. But until then, we'll, we'll get ready for the third movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, yeah, James, have you got anything else to say? Anything you, you might have missed about the other two before we wrap up? Oh, I could talk about these movies for, for hours. But um, no, I think the thing that just, like I said, surprised me so much was was... I don't think there are, there's not many movies, like you said, that can really, as a whole, so much stronger than they are as individual pieces. And it's just, he, I'm not a huge Richard Linkletter fan outside of mm. these movies. I mean, I, I, I've never seen Boyhood. Um, mm. I think the only other, I've seen Days and Confused. I think uh, I've seen A Scanner Darkly, but um he did a scanner darkly. That was his movie. Yeah. Wow. With that same waking life. Uh, yeah, rotoscoping. Yeah. yeah, but that's black and white, isn't it? With Keanu Reeves and Ronaldo Ryder. I didn't know he did that. Yeah, that was ah. him. And uh, but yeah, I've just never. He's never been one of the ones that that has stood out to me, except for these three movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think it's it says so much too. Like <laughs> I I don't know why this just occurred to me that both Ethan Hawke and Julie Depley ended up inevitably have been sucked into Marvel. And, uh, you know, they're, they've both been a part of like, uh, Marvel things at this point. And really, I don't know. Wow. I'm losing my Marvel credits. Julie Depley was, uh, it was just a tiny little part, but she was in the second Avengers movie as the person who trains black widow. Really? And, uh, Ethan, oh. Ethan Hawke's going to be the villain in one of the upcoming Disney plus shows. Uh, really so that you know whereas you think about that that i remember so well that period in the 90s you know clerks and swingers and pulp fiction and you know that that indie scene that has never been replicated uh since the 90s 
and now they're all just working for Disney. <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. sad. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that a fourth movie, I'm glad that they didn't feel like, okay, well, it's it's been nine years since the third one. We got to make another one. We got to do this every nine years. I'm glad that they've said, you know what, we're waiting until we've got something to say. You know, the, the fact that the, the second and third were nine years apart was a coincidence. They're just, they're waiting until Jesse and Celine have evolved to them to a point where they feel like a fourth movie can add something. And to me, that just, all, that says that the fourth movie is going to even further enrich all the, the previous three movies. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you should say that. Ethan Hawke, you didn't even you didn't even watch the Instagram video Ethan Hawke did earlier this year. Look, he did it last year in the height of the pan pandemic, actually. That's exactly what he said. We're only going to do a movie if we have something to say. And I can understand why Richard Linklater took the path he did in the third one because he wanted to say something, and I understand that, and I will get to that. Um, but, yeah, I just not much more I want to say, but... Yeah, I love the. I, what, a, what a great series! I can't wait to talk about more. Can't wait to see what happens. Um, there's a movie. I promised this, and I can't. I was on IMDb while you were talking. I was trying to find it. Ethan Hawke, he's still prolific. Training Day, you know, one of my favorite movies. Uh, Gattaca. He did a movie, this crazy time travel movie. I can't remember what it's called. Oh my god, there it is. Predestination. There's a movie Ethan Hawke did in 2014. That's just an aside. Watch this sci-fi movie called Predestination. Fucking crazy. Um, okay. <laughs> but James, let me throw it to you. You know what? We kind of messed things up because the last thing we discussed about wasn't a movie before this. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give you the next pick. Do you have a choice for the next movie you want us to discuss? Actually, yes. I was planning on bringing it up afterwards. Uh, but uh, the next movie that... I can think of that really stood out to me as being a, a Woody Allen inspired movie and is from somebody who is a, an avowed Woody Allen fan is a movie called Top Five that Chris Rock did back oh in 2014. Yeah. And uh, it's very Woody Allen like. I think it was really Chris Rock wanting to do a Woody Allen kind of a movie, yeah. but in a way that only chris rock could do so that would be my pick for the next one and that's what we're going to talk about it was on the list james it was oh, already on the go. list <laughs> so thank you for picking it i've watched that movie and to be obviously chris rock has been he's kind of defended woody allen on the side he's he's been mm -hmm. in a lot of interviews and documentaries talking about he loves woody allen I think he pretty much said it in the making of that movie, Top 5, as well. But yeah, we'll get into Top 5. I'm really looking forward to watching that and discussing that with you. So on that note, I think we're done, James. How can the people reach you and how can they get in contact with you if they want to? I am at uh, manic-expression.com and you can always find my books on Amazon. Yes, um, I'm at, well, Twitter, at Planet Tyro. That's P-L-A-N... It's going to be in a podcast description. People people always ask me, how do you spell Planet Tyra? Just look in the pod podcast description for James's link, for our links. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to, if you can, if you can find it in your heart to leave us a review on iTunes, that really helps us gain some notoriety on the algorithms and helps us rise. 
But I want to really, really, and I should, sorry, I should say this. On the last discussion we had about the Mia Fowl documentary, we got a lot of support. And I really appreciate that. I'm not going to get into it, but I will say the support was really great. And I appreciate level-headed people having discourse, even if we don't all agree. So that was fantastic. But I'll leave it at that, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you, James, as always. And we'll see you guys on the next recording.